Welcome back to the 125th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how the left breeds chaos because they hate order, an interesting article talking about Joe Biden and the fight that he's going to have to face in Michigan against people who don't necessarily like his Israel policy, and Iran's claims to Antarctica. Nice little fun article. And we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So have any of you read uh, 12 Rules for Life? Because, you know, there was a hubbub about it. I definitely grabbed the book. I didn't read it initially, and then I came back around to it. And whether or not you agree with all the stuff that Jordan says in there, I think his analysis of chaos versus order is very, very important. And I think that our generation is having a lot of conversations around this, not because of his book specifically, even though it has some cultural influence, no doubt about that, but that mainly pertains to one circle or another. But the conversation of chaos versus order is most definitely something that our generation is dealing with no matter what. When you look at situations like a uh, gender binary versus a gender spectrum, one of those is chaos and one of those is order. And I'm not trying to put my values out there and say, oh, one is better than the other. But when you have a, a gender spectrum, when you have something that can have anything in between, essentially, where you know how, let me uh, use a nice little math term. My teacher said I would never use math, but uh, there's something that they always talked about, which is in between zero and one, there is an infinite amount of variations on how you get from point zero to point one, whether it be point zero 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 five one one. So you see where I'm getting at here. When you open up a spectrum, there are so many variations, there are so many alternatives, there can be new identities that we hadn't fully thought of before on the gender spectrum, and they just keep going and going and going. And this is an agent of chaos. It's unpredictability because, guess what, tomorrow can, someone can identify as something that nobody else has identified as before. So, chaos. Gender binary, no matter how restrictive you think it may be, order. Yeah, one or the other. And these sort of conversations are happening all across. They've always happened in human society, but especially in an age where information flows so easily and you can get alternative perspectives and you can be confronted by all these different ideas and bad ideas can spread faster and good ideas can be trounced out. This is a era of chaos more than any other. So what do you think about this idea of order and chaos within the world. Do you think we're getting more chaotic? Do you think we're getting more orderly? Some aspects we may be getting more orderly, some we may be getting more chaotic. Throw your comments in the comment section down there. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. I know this was a bit of a longer daily debate, but I felt like it needed a little bit of context before we jumped in and give you a chance to kind of develop your, your feelings about the matter before we get into an article that comes from a obviously conservative outlet in the Daily Signal. And the headline here reads, The Left and Chaos. So this is more of a descriptive piece, not really a prescriptive piece. But uh, let's, let's see what the author has to say. It is impossible to understand what is happening to America and the rest of the West without understanding the most dynamic ideology of the last hundred years, 
leftism. We need to begin with the understanding that leftism or progressivism and liberalism are not only not the same ideologies, they are in fact opposed to each other on virtually every major issue. And hey, this is an interesting, this is an important point that definitely gets uh, conflated or uh, glanced over nowadays, and then leftism and liberalism get conflated, just like uh, right nationalism gets conflated with MAGAism, and MAGAism gets conflated with conservatism in general. So yeah, we, we definitely live in a era when there's so many different topics, there's so many different groups that we need to simplify some things. So if you're a deficit hawk and you want to see the wars in other countries stop and on the right-hand side, and then on the other side, you're, or sorry, on the right-hand side, but in a different category, you're a person that's okay with Social Security spending and you just have a, a really, really uh, U.S.-first policy when it comes to where our aid is, is going, or maybe you're a person who wants to heavily tariff other nations when it comes to getting their goods into the United States because you feel as though there's a trade disadvantage. All of these are different brands of conservative. But if their language is strong enough, everybody gets thrown into, ah, they're alt-right. Oh, they're, they're far-right. Rather than breaking it down saying, no, one is a neocon, one is a deficit hawk Republican, and another is a... Uh, America first economic Republican or just like on the left when you have people who are classically liberal who want free markets, they want as much liberty and freedom for each individual and that means that they can do as they would please devoid of whether or not there's any moral judgment there, classical liberal. Uh, You have your more left liberal or I would say welfare liberal who wants to expand a lot of the welfare programs and ensure that the government is standing in for people who are in terrible situations and that they can't necessarily pay their own way. Or you have the leftist liberal who is outright okay with the government directly, directly getting involved with people's lives and mandating which way certain things need to go. Just like this would be, just like the Warhawk Republicans saying, hey, no, we we are going to this war and you taxpayers are going to fund it. These sort of, they're not analogous in that they believe the same thing, but the amount of government involvement definitely is very close or at least can be comparable. And the point here is they all just get lumped in to liberals they all, or they just all get called leftists. These terms get interchanged. So the fact that the author is trying to break this down and have two separate definitions is very, very helpful. And when I say that, when I say it's helpful, I'm not saying, ah, yes, we need to absolutely 100% distinguish between them. No, what I'm saying is if you want to generalize and just call everybody the left, sure, go right ahead. But when having specific value conversations, you really do have to peg in on this because liberals who, when you start saying, hey, the leftists want to do this, this, and this, and some liberal says, no, I don't, I don't want to do that, it kind of undermines the conversation and it either makes them feel defensive or makes you look stupid for not necessarily understanding where to start the conversation. So you should probably ask, hey, where do you stand on this? 
and then you can categorize them in your own mind. You don't have to say it out loud like, oh, so you're a social liberal, but an economic conservative with faith-based values and morality. Like, you don't have to spell it out all the time. But at least having these different categories and understanding all the different subsections, it's hard. It's annoying. And it gets really, really confusing sometimes because that can lead to conflicting ideas. Like, the free market libertarian and the border libertarian, uh, you can have both of those ideologies within one person, but they may conflict just a little bit. And yes, I, I've heard coherent arguments in between them, but when a person presents it to you, those ideologies might conflict, or at least the, the way that they're summarizing them and the way that they have rationalized their positions may conflict. And you have to take people as what they are, which is as individuals that cannot always be 100% consistent in their thinking, even though it would be ideal if we all were very consistent in our thinking, or at least relatively consistent with the uh, underlying ideas that go into something like this. So when the author makes this distinction, I think it's very, very important. Let's jump to the part where he actually describes what each is. Leftism and liberalism only have two things in common. One is belief in a big government, which, given that individual and social liberty decline as the state grows, is a significant similarity. The other left-liberal commonality is antipathy to the right. This is even more important than commitment to big government issues because it explains why liberals vote for left leftists despite the fact that liberals differ far more than these left-wing positions than the conservative positions. And I think both of those tap into something very, very important. The, the left's idea of, hey, we're going to play team ball. That is a very true fact. I, I would say that if you're going to look at the House and you say, okay, which of the two parties currently in power is going to vote more as a block on average? It will be the Democrats. And the reason they're willing to play team ball like that, one, because they have a, an eight sense that they, they really want to win and they want government to expand and function and be more involved in people's lives. And when I say that, I don't have any negative connotation to it, even though I don't want more of government involvement in my life and I don't think more government involvement in lives is good overall, but that is that's genuinely what they want. They want more government involvement in people's lives to support them in bad situations, to provide them opportunities, things of that nature, or at least that's how they would frame it. So we got to be intellectually honest here. We got to be very genuine when we're approaching this, because if we try, and this is when anybody tries to characterize somebody and they instantly lay over their value judgments over it, over it it can kind of cloud the judgment here. Not saying that whether or not they want big government is a good or a bad thing. What I'm saying is a pretty objective evaluation of it is the case that they want more government. Now, there are some liberals that lean more moderate that don't necessarily want bigger government. They would rather you know, reallocate funds that we currently have towards other social programs. But when that money runs out, maybe they would want to increase taxes in order to make more welfare programs. Uh, we haven't seen that f borne out, in fact, in reality. So it's an interesting one. So the whole point of this article is the, the chaos versus the order mentality. And how do we get there? Because we've done, I, you know, I spent a lot of time breaking down uh, why we need to make sure we know the, these groups are distinct, but for general purposes, you can kind of lump them together on some ideological grounds. That's what the author's getting at here. So why is it chaotic versus 
another point of view that may be more order-based. Quote, so two liberals do not believe that capitalism is evil, that America is systematically racist, and that all whites are racist, and that Israel is evil in the Middle East, and Zionism is racist. So then, given that those leftist positions are destructive as they are absurd, how are we to explain leftism? This question has preoccupied me most of my adult life. I'm honestly going to skip this part because he just talks about his history. Uh, he studied a very, very, very uh, niche topic of leftism and how it presents across uh, human society at Columbia. Quote, early on, I recognized the left opposes liberty, and the clearest example being that whatever the left, whenever the left gains power, whether at a university or in a social society as a whole, it suppresses free speech and that it destroys everything it touches. But while I and many others have always understood that the left, again, not liberalism, has always everywhere been a force of evil, I need to understand why. How can people believe that men can give birth, that a country which has more than 4 million black people that, that have immigrated in which twice elected a black president is systematically racist, that the fairest country in the Middle East, one in which millions of Arabs live as equal citizens, is the villain, while its barbaric enemies are worth worthy of supporting. So Israel-Hamas debate is what he's talking about there. Uh, the fact that we have in-law... Uh, lots of protections against discrimination based on race, so on and so forth. So he's looking at the circumstances he's like, well, okay, how, how can they come to these conclusions? And also, how can they come to these conclusions that are inherently going to fracture, fracture the population um, in order to fix systematic racism? At least the pr- proposal that has been put out there is anti-racism. And anti-racism sounds great on its face. But what happens? In most situations, it's creating black-only spaces so they can have dialogue with one another. Sounds like a very worthy cause. Guess what? It's just segregation. It's just excluding other races this time rather than excluding black people. Or having affirmative action, having preferential treatment towards one group rather than the other. That is discrimination based on race. Now, am I going to say that's racism? I, I think that all of these things... All of these things in the modern definition of racism could definitely be branded as racism. Um, I don't think that the people that get together in those black-only rooms who are kind of separating themselves and having these conversations because they want a space where they can just have a black-only kind of uh, ethos, so to speak, or a Mexican-only ethos, so to speak, I don't think that's inherently racist in the proper definition, because in what way are they declaring that they're superior to white people? Uh, I think it is discrimination based on race, but that doesn't equal racism. And I think we also need to have that conversation nowadays, but that is a topic for another day because definitions shift all the time. And that is one that I have a hard time actually shifting on because racism has a very specific meaning and it has for quite some time. And to equate previous definitions of racism with a modern definition of racism doesn't do it justice. We need very particular language in order to have very complex conversations. Okay, so what is the other part of this? What is the part that really brings out the chaos in the author's opinion? Who, throughout their history, Americans have had three great providers of meaning, family, religion, and patriotism. Leftists lack the latter two, 
Indeed, they seek to get rid of them, and increasing numbers of them lack the first. Since human beings cannot live without meaning, it is as great as the need as food, and even greater than sex, they seek meaning elsewhere. So they create new meanings through creating secular religions, socialism, communism, feminism, environmentalism, DEI, anti-racism, anti-Zionism, LGBT, LGBTQIA+, pride, trans activism, among others. So this is an interesting point that he's getting at. And I think, honestly, I think he, he makes it seem as though uh, they are purposely doing this, and I think it's more of a byproduct that comes from their mentality that the, the traditional bounds, the traditional uh, structures that give people meaning have been used to channel people's energies in the past. They have been altered. They've been looked at. They said, okay, hey, no, we don't, we don't want these anymore. And therefore, because they're trying to move in a different direction, they're trying to progress beyond those things, they are inherently destroying the previous order for something new. But in order to build something new, it's a chaotic, chaotic process. It's going to be frantic until these systems come into place. And that is why they are more in favor of, or their actions cause more chaos than order. And actually, I think this, this makes sense, and I wouldn't even disagree. I think the progressives want to strive to a different order, and they do want to strive towards order in the end. But in order to get there, they have to overthrow the current order or at least alter the current order, which inherently is going to breed chaos. Yeah, I think this is actually very consistent. And I think even some people that are real leftists or progressives would 100% agree with the summarization here that I've come to at the end. That yes, they're striving for a higher order, but they understand that breaking down something that is an order structure, an order system now is necessary to get there. And that's what the political battle between left and right is, or progressives and real conservatives is. Conservatives pull back and say, whoa, whoa, hey, you're, pull, you're pushing us way too fast into the future. You, like, I understand you have values that go beyond us now. You want to redefine some things. You want to have different ideas. Great, you're going to push forward in the legislative sense. But us conservatives, hey, we recognize our history. We understand how some of these things you're proposing don't work out. Some of these things we, we could experiment with, but we need to slow the roll. And that is inherently why conservatives are at a disadvantage in, in government, because they're always pulling back, whereas the progressives are always running forward. So I think a lot of people would actually, though the author makes it sound really, uh, I don't want to say how I read it at first was like, oh, the, the leftists cause chaos. I, I think it was more of a genuine attempt. It wasn't just a, a hit piece, so to speak. And I think if they, progressive people, listen to the way that I described it, they, they may actually understand a little bit more where the author is coming from. So speaking about progressive people and uh, Joe Biden, the next president, he is facing a little bit of a uh, issue in Michigan with some of his progressive voters. Uh, this next article comes from Truthout. Michigan campaign to vote uncommitted grows as Biden continues Israel's support. So we've heard about this for quite some time. And on the left in general, there are lots of people who don't actually support Israel. They support Hamas, or at least they are outright protesting against Israel to ensure that people in Hamas don't uh, die unnecessarily, so on and so forth. And there's a large population of Arab Americans in Michigan. Dearborn, Michigan is a, a great example. There are lots of pockets of uh, Muslim or uh, Arab Americans throughout the United States. So this is not the only place that he has to 
have these serious conversations and try to appeal to them. But Michigan is a very key swing state, and that's why it keeps getting the attention from the media. Because if you're a person trying to highlight why Biden's going to have a hard time, like the Republicans, then you're going to want to call these sort of things out. You're going to say, hey, he's going to have a tricky time in Michigan with these Arab voters, whether or not you agree with them. And if you're a progressive pushing a certain policy or a person who's pro uh, Hamas, or at least pro-Palestine over uh, Israel. You see, look, even then, I fell into the talking point of if you're pro-Palestine, you're pro-Hamas. Yep, it's just something that I've heard so many times over the course of the last few months. It just kind of slipped in, and that that's something that we need to have a, a different conversation about. We need to be hyper-vigilant, or at least I need to be hyper-vigilant of those sort of things, because we're not actually talking about that today. We're talking about voters in America that support a certain ideology and how it's going to affect Mr. Biden here. And if you're a progressive who really does believe that there needs to be a ceasefire, you're also going to tout this issue and say, hey, look, Mr. Biden, you're, you're going to face some issues here. You need to pay attention to this. You need to give it some time. You need to come to our side of the aisle so that you can get these key voters and you can possibly win Michigan so you can become president again. Because we know your ego, just like the ego of Trump, is going to keep you going in trying to get to the presidency, even though both of them should probably reevaluate. Um, but that's a topic for another day. So, a growing coalition of progressives and anti-Zionist advocates campaigning for voters in Michigan's upcoming Democratic primary vote to vote uncommitted rather than cast a vote for President Joe Biden due to the administration's staunch support for Israel's genocidal assault on Gaza. Uh, once again, you have coded, you have not coded language, you have pretty outright language, uh, but you have biased language coming from uh, the truth out. But, you know, as to each his own, just wanted to point it out at least. Uh, as the New York Times reported Wednesday, progressive group Our Revolution... I do find that as a to be a funny name of a organization. Uh, just don't do anything too revolutionary because then somebody's going to sue you and be like, it's literally called our revolution. You're trying to revolt against something. And if they do it against America as a whole, it, it may be an issue. Uh, quote, is beginning an email, text banking, and phone banking campaign to convince voters to cast a protest vote to put more pressure on Biden to change course on his administration's Gaza policy. Our revolution sent emails promoting the effort to 87,000 Michigan members on Wednesday with the message signed by former House Rep. Andy Levin. So yes, you, you can see here there is a concerted effort. And 87,000 Michigan members saying, hey, no, we want a ceasefire. That, that's no small number. That is a big deal. And let's be clear, it probably wouldn't be the biggest deal in the world in the primary, but when it comes to a general, there are way tighter margins than that in a lot of general elections in the past. And now Michigan hasn't always been that close, to be honest, but imagine an 87,000-person shift, or even that they vote for RFK, which they wouldn't, because if they're really uh, pro-Palestine and not pro-Israel, then they definitely wouldn't vote for RFK. But just imagine there's another third-party candidate. It doesn't matter where their votes are really uh, channeled. They're still not voting for Biden. That's a huge swing away from Biden. And if there are other third-party candidates, like 
and RFK, who are also pulling votes away from him and Trump. That can make a big difference in a state like Michigan. So you can see that this public pressure campaign is, is definitely something the Biden administration is like throwing off. Now, I think there is a little bit of arrogance on the Democratic and Biden side where they say, oh, yeah, OK, they are showing their dissatisfaction now. But at the end of the day, people don't want Trump. At the end of the day, they're going to vote Democrat. So uh, we should just you know keep the course. And they eventually on the day of when everything is really tight, when the pressure is on, they're going to say, oh, I guess I have to vote for Biden. Uh, there's no official documents saying that that's the case. But. I think that that's enough of a historic trend in most elections that the numbers of independents in polling go down or the people willing to vote third party go down as we get extremely close to the actual election day. So I think there's historic basis for it and there's enough of it that the thinking within the team at the White House could be like, yeah, okay, well, we don't actually have to worry about this so much. But it's, um, it's something that may come and bite him in the butt. Quote, the group has an email list of 128,000 voters and reminds Democrats on its website that Donald Trump won Michigan in 2016 by a margin of 10,000 votes. Look at that. We just talked about this. Uncommitted Michigan Democrats opposed Biden's policy in Gaza can demonstrate that we hold his margin of victory for re-election, the group said. So the the question here is, is he going to do just enough? Where he's still going to support Israel, but he's going to do just enough to sway these people over so he can get their votes and then either do nothing about it or, you know, he does do some some small things, but it's not exactly the ceasefire that they want. Um, I think that that is the most likely. Not to say that our revolution isn't doing something that it will work. I think they're, they're following their hearts. They're doing what they believe. They're using their power uh, to express themselves, sorry, they're using their voice to express themselves politically and trying to use the leverage that they have in order to get what they want. Great political expression as long as you're not using violence, so on and so forth. But I do believe that enough people will be peeled off by Biden's small efforts in order to handle this because there's no way, that this is part of his demographic now and it's not just in Michigan, like I said earlier. So there's no way that he won't do something else in order to possibly get a talking point about it. And I think it will be just enough to peel away the people who are, okay, hey, you know, he did do something. He's doing his incremental process. He's, he's slowly building towards something better. And he's the most likely to actually address it versus Trump. So we're going to vote for him. I think that's the reality on the ground. But I do think a very large protest vote, vote during the primary, at least, would say a lot. Because let's be clear. Biden's going to win that primary no matter what because of how the DNC has everything structured. Dean Phillips, definitely not going to win this one. Marion Williamson, not going to win this one. RFK is in the independent camp now. So he's going to win it either way. But it still can send a message before he gets to the general that, hey, there may be a lot more discontented people than you actually think. So we went over that one very quickly. Now we I know we normally have a daily delight, which is fun at the end. But um, (laughs) this article is just hilarious to me. Uh, It comes from Fox News. Iran declares Antarctica its property in direct challenge to Biden global treaty. So I can't tell if Fox News is trying to say Iran has uh, expansionist policies and that's why they're bringing it up. I don't know if they want to bring it up to expose Joe Biden's weakness. Uh, Maybe it's a little bit of both. But (laughs) when I read it, I was like, okay, this is like uh, China claiming we are a near Arctic or sorry, a near uh, North Pole, uh, which is a near Arctic state. And that's why we should have rights to some of the water up there in Canada, the U.S. and Russia, uh, Finland, Sweden, 
Iceland, Greenland, so technically Denmark. They're all there like, yeah, sure, China. This is, <laughs> is Iran calling this is like, calling this their territory is, is absolutely laughable. Now, should we be aware that Iran has made these claims? Yes. Um, thank you, Fox News, for bringing us this article. But the fact that we took it even close to seriously is hilarious. And you may be thinking, oh, you just read the, the headline. No, no, I actually, I did read the article. Um, they just talk about how the treaty is structured and how it could cause some issues, but it probably won't cause any issues because it's Iran just blustering, even though they do have some expansionary policies where they're trying to influence places in the near the Panama Canal so that they could have influence over trade and things like that. And... I just, okay, the Arctic's already basically split up. When it, there's been a treaty with, let me make sure that I get the exact amount of nations correct, I do believe that it is 13 as of this moment. Um, yes, it is 13 nations, sorry, 12 signatory nations that have a treaty that kind of divvy up certain locations on the Arctic. And I'll be honest, you know, if Iran wanted to argue, well, hey, all these states, they don't necessarily have anyone, uh, any area close to the Antarctic. I mean, one of them <laughs> is uh, Finland. So I don't, sorry, Norway. And I don't necessarily think that Norway is right there next to the Arctic. And by don't necessarily think, I mean, I know. I, then again, I did mix up Finland and Norway, so may, maybe I don't know anything. But Norway is definitely not near the Antarctic, and yet they have a claim. But the argument would be, well, yeah, but all these people explored it first. They actually sent teams down there in their official capacity, or at least in some sort of capacity, like a private team that was authorized to uh, use some government resources and therefore to claim territory, so on and so forth. Iran wasn't there. So if they wanted to make it on that basis, they can't. If they wanted to make it on a proximity basis, they can't. It is a laughable, laughable article. But I do think it's worth a good read because uh, you can see the bias for Fox News. You can also see why it could be a legitimate threat if you're towards that disposition. And if you're not, you could just have a good old laugh at Iran's claims. So let's jump to our final article that is actually our daily delight. And this one comes from Parade Pets. Cat's dramatic attempts to capture party guests' attention deserves an Oscar. And you know, I, I don't necessarily uh, know if I agree that it deserves an Oscar. Uh, maybe a, a Caesar? Yeah, I'm going to give that give that a second to sink in. Caesar's cat food? Okay, never mind. It, obviously, it was a terrible, terrible joke. But my point being, let's read a little bit from here and see... What is so dramatic that he deserves this this prestigious nomination for an Oscar? Quote, in typical cat fashion, when one cat wasn't getting the attention they felt they deserved at a party, they put on quite a performance. In a quick eight-second video, he got a big dose of Paquito's personality when he was waiting to get what he felt he deserved from the humans. In the clip, there appears to be a party at someone's house, and when many adults are standing around, the food and drinks are on the table, there is lots of laughter. And then the camera pans to see Paquito sitting alone on his couch, putting on an Oscar-worthy performance. 
and you know, rolling around saying, come here, give me, give me, give me that sort of thing. So if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article, or you want to read any of the other articles from today's podcast, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.